Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. I was told uh, last week to... Uh, remind the people who sit over there that if you can't hear me, you can, it's okay to shut the window. Even if they're sweating on this side. <laughs> I, I also just want to say to everybody how I'm very touched by how thoughtful everyone's been around uh, our pregnancy and Karina is supposed to give birth sometime this week so we're doing everything possible so that it happens soon Um, and uh, yeah I really um, I'm just really touched everyone's been so kind and so beautiful some of you have sewn amazing things and written nice cards and it's just been great. So, so. Um, uh, yeah, and and there's been so many births in this sangha. It's amazing. So some of you know that Nicole's pregnant, who is our administration queen, um, and uh, Holly had a baby this week. Holly Tredenick, who lots of you know, who used to uh, come and teach anatomy. Here, um, and uh, Kelly McGill had a baby. Uh, when did she have a baby? A month ago. Yeah. If you've seen the pictures on Facebook, her, her baby might be the most beautiful baby ever. I mean, my son was pretty cute, but her baby is really. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, for everybody that I know that has had a baby, there's also somebody in our sangha who wants to have a baby and hasn't been able to have a baby or uh, can't uh, biologically have a baby or is in a relationship where it's just not possible. So I also hope that when a baby gets born in our sangha that everybody feels the birth of this baby and rejoices in the birth of a baby um, because it's not just one person's baby, or you know, now we think it's this couple's baby in this nuclear model, but it's everybody's baby, and so let's all uh, be happy for these uh, babies that are coming. 
And I love knowing that there are babies being born to people who have a practice, who are dedicated to really being conscientious parents. And if they're not conscientious parents, they have a community that will let them know. And of course, these are, these are all parents who are giving birth to babies who are not going to be into the Dharma. <laughs> Maybe they can do a downward dog at a party, but... <laughs> yeah. um, I think that we're working through chapter four now of Shanti Deva's text, the Bodhicharyavatara. Uh, the Bodhisattva's uh, way of life or a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Um, I'm going to split chapter four into two talks. So one will be this week and one will be next week. Um, Because the chapter really has two different themes. Uh, The first theme is conscientiousness and attentiveness and the practice of attentiveness. And the second theme uh, is working with strong emotions. Uh, In Pema Chodron's commentary on the text, uh, which I haven't looked at during all these teachings until today, Uh, She describes the second part of the fourth chapter as learning how to work with the change underneath emotions, which I thought was a really, really valuable clue to how to practice this uh, chapter. So I think uh, next class, uh, my focus will be just really practically how to work with really strong emotions. I think... All of us really need to learn that. It's easy to sit when everyone's around and it's fairly calm. But we also really need to work with extreme states. And so I want to talk about that uh, next, next class. So, uh, when you sit, you focus on your inhale and your exhale. And what you start to notice is that your attention is easily entangled in anything. Sirens, the person next to you, um, your mood, and so on. And when that starts to settle, uh, the next thing you start to see are your deeper patterns of attachment and aversion, deeper forms of clinging, and the tendency to cling. And in that, what you're also looking at is your philosophy, your philosophy about life, your philosophy about yourself, what you can accept and what you can't allow in uh, to the body, into the moment, uh, what emotions you can handle and what you can't. And uh, most people don't think they have a philosophy. You know, most meditators think, oh, I don't have a philosophy. I'm free of a philosophy. Um, But actually, 
uh, a philosophy is most effective when you can't see it. So it's like plumbing in this building. The, the plumbing's most effective when you're not aware of the plumbing in the building. When you're aware of the plumbing system in this building, then you have a problem. So we all know this. So there's all kinds of philosophical systems in the culture that we don't recognize. All kinds of assumptions. Economic assumptions, assumptions about sexuality and gender, assumptions about how to raise children. My son said to me, uh, our, our kid is going to be really different than the other kids that I'm friends with. This is his brother that's coming. I said, why is that? He says, because he's going to have a mom and a dad. And most of my friends have two moms. <laughs> and I, I actually didn't really think of it, but actually, like most of my son's friends don't have a, a, a male and female parent. Um, so anyways, it's kind of interesting. That makes him very unique. <laughs> to have a male and female parent. So um, when you look at your philosophy, what you're really looking at is your karma. The first time I ever really learned about karma was on a retreat with a Theravadan monk named Ajahn Amaro. And, so he had, and he, he, he's from England, so he had a British accent, and he taught in Pali. And in Pali, the word for karma is kama. And every time he said it in his British accent, which I can't repeat, I heard the word drama. So every time he talked about your karma, I thought he was saying, your drama. And actually, I think that this is a really good translation of karma. It's, so, is your drama. So if you think of all of your drama, that is your karma. So this could be a new translation, I think, that is acceptable. We'll see. What happens when it goes on the blog? <laughs> and what heals your drama is the Dharma, is this practice. Is this practice that we do. It has so many components, this practice. The first component of practice is your intention to practice. And I think the best way to do that is to wake up in the morning and as you're getting up, you say to yourself, today, I'm really going to practice. Some of you have been coming to Center of Gravity long enough or you've been reading books where you have some ideas about practice and sometimes it just becomes a little conceptual and our actual moment-to-moment -moment practice can slip a little bit. So I want to, to find some new ways, to, and maybe I'll work on this myself, to find some synonyms for the word practice. To really know what does it mean moment to moment to moment to really practice, to give everything. Or as a few weeks ago we talked about the Dalai Lama's comment that moment to moment practice is altruistic attitude. The Dalai Lama said every morning he wakes up and the first thing he says to himself is altruistic attitude. 
altruistic attitude, which to me is just like saying, yes, (coughs) yes. I hope that when you and I have conversations or you take an intensive or the precepts course or we have meetings one-on-one, that you take these teachings and you really, really, truly practice them. And you practice them when there's calmness early in the morning. And you also practice when things are really hard. And when you have an anxiety attack, you don't just have an anxiety attack. You really treat it as an opportunity to put the wedge of practice right into those thought bubbles and to fully be in your body. And when you're bored, I know nobody gets bored anymore, but when you're bored and you don't have your phone, you know, um, that you, my teacher Enkyo Roshi calls people rectangle people. (laughs) She says everywhere you go, they're walking around with a rectangle. (laughs) Her too. (laughs) <laughs> um, that, that you, when you're bored you become really interested in being bored and then the dharma can heal your drama and of course the word dharma is just a placeholder for two terms practice and love because love can really heal your drama Has anyone here ever tried to love? You try to love, and the aspiration is 100%. It's great. And then, really soon, your philosophy shows up. Uh You really want to love, but your philosophy is in the way. Your philosophy about love, that your love can only stretch here and only stretch there, and in this way it's shaded, and that way it's free. And that's not loving. That's your philosophy of love. That's not practice. That's your ideas about altruistic practice. Uh, This past New Year's retreat, uh, there was somebody there who had a very, very hard time. Uh, The sitting was hard. It was really painful. Has anybody here been on retreat and the sitting is painful? Sometimes it actually has nothing to do with your joints. It's just your philosophy. Your philosophy is really painful. And sometimes there's a feedback loop where the body's stiff and then your philosophy is stiff. And that combination is also really hard. And it was hard to do the Oriyoki practice and hard to bow and hard to sit and she didn't like the person next to her and it was building up and building up and building up until it was just pain. And then she had a breakthrough. Four days. I'm glad the retreat was five days. (laughs) And she came in and she said, I get it. All I have to do is care. I thought this was a brilliant insight. I'm in pain, and she had her philosophy means 
when you feel deep pain, you try to make it better. And our practice is saying, the person next to you is sitting still, the person on the other side is sitting still, the person in front of you is sitting still, and now you're going to sit still in the middle of your pain. And the pressure rose and rose and rose. And then she saw something. All I have to do is care. She said it better than Shantideva. Isn't that beautiful? All I have to do is care. To care about our pain is love. So love is to be resilient. It's to care about your pain. It's to be wounded, to be broken, and then to keep going on loving. One of the things I loved about psychotherapy when I was working uh, as a therapist, I don't really do that anymore, um, was just being in a room with somebody and tracking their experience so closely that all you have to do for one hour is just fully be with somebody. Nowadays in therapy circles, everyone's into mindfulness and all the therapists are trying to just be in the present moment. But I mean, somebody who's just totally in the present moment has dementia. Advanced dementia, actually. (laughs) The core teaching of the Dharma is not the present moment. The core teaching of the Dharma is causality, is sequencing. To really track someone, you have to know what came before and you have to know where their life is heading. And you can only do that in the present. But in the present, you're seeing all their past karma. You're seeing their philosophy. And their philosophy will show up in relationship to you. Because we're not atomized people. We are different people with different people. So who you are is relational. When someone comes into the therapy room, they're bringing their parents and their siblings and their job. They're bringing our economy. They're bringing the whole ecology of their life. And you just track that moment to moment to moment. And I always thought, if you can really track that, then that is love. And that's what's healing, therapeutically. You see somebody's philosophy, and then they see it. And then you have some space where either you can repeat it, or not repeat it. Like, for example, can we use your chair, Lana? Sure. Do you want to bring it over here? So, for example, this is a this is a therapy move. 
I felt like last week I had to stand up also. <laughs> I don't know what this is. Okay. So this is a therapy move. So let's do it with Andrea. So, so we would say, Andrea, so you just imagine that your mom is here. So then you miss And right away, so right away, her philosophy shows it. And if we went further with it, she might want to say something like, Oh, well, if I'm going to relate to my mom, then the chair should be <laughs> over here. And then that creates a whole different philosophy. Or maybe she needs the chair like right here. And that creates a whole different other. Hence, thank you. I don't know how you're going to draw that on the block. <laughs> And, and you can feel it. You can feel it. So, so how the other is set up influences us at a very deep cellular level. We could spend now an hour just exploring what showed up for Andrea, just even considering this possibility. I, I just saw her mom. Her mom came to the... Can I tell the story? Her mom comes to the door, looks at me, and says... Where's Karina and the baby? <laughs> and she didn't even say hello. <laughs> I've, been, I've been thinking about it since then. It was like preparation for what's coming. For the <laughs> we always have an other that we care about, that cares about us. I remember... Uh, some of you might have read a book that I, I put together called Awaken the World, and the last section of that book is on suicide. And with people who are going to take their own life, the people who tend to do it are people who don't have an other. And the people who tend not to take their own life are people who are in relationship with an other that they're having a dialogue with. We're made up of other people. All of us. You're made up of other people. Have you noticed how many people you are in a day? <laughs> Depending on who you're with or what the objects are around you. Different people all the time. Not a singular self. In the Abhidharma, which is the fundamental text of Buddhist psychology, try reading the seventh chapter. Uh, but the seventh chapter is all about how different objects condition the mind. So depending on what we're relating to, the mind gets conditioned in different ways. And you meditate on this to see that the mind has no central loci, no central um, eternal substance, that it's relational. And I think at a deep intuitive level, we all know this. So Shantideva is talking at the beginning of the fourth chapter about living a life in a conscientious way that we're in service to others. 
Um, some of you know Simone, who couldn't be here tonight. Um, her, her partner's uh, father just passed away. He lived in Lucha in Italy. And um, I wanted to read you Simone's description uh, of him, um, with her permission, of course. Uh, The father's name is Ignazio. Ignazio's curiosity must have caught him off guard at times. After several days of peering through the curtains to watch our early morning yoga practice on his balcony, he dared tell me that he was impressed. I know he was fond of the circus performances he saw on TV. He applauded all the amazing things these people could do with their bodies. So I suggested that I could show him a simple chair yoga practice that could be done indoors, and to our surprise, Ignazio agreed. He was a curmudgeon. Michelangelo, this is Simone's partner, sat next to him and provided a simultaneous translation from English to Italian through the 20-minute lesson. If Ignazio remembered nothing else from the session we did, it was my persistence. However, I recall his emphatic words and face after the final breathing practice at the end. He relayed his difficulty with painful thoughts. He said they kept him up at night on a regular basis. He was struck by how these thoughts had vanished during the breathing and that he had never experienced anything like this before. He described a momentary peaceful feeling. Being a meditator, I was of course impressed by his account. If ever I needed proof of the validity of the yoga technique, here was the old man telling me so. However, it was his excitement that has stayed with me. In this moment, his blue eyes pierce space in vivid presence. Here we met eye to eye for the first time. A day later, Ignazio shuffled up to us to share that he was lonely, living here in Lucha on his own. It was the most intimate he had ever been with us, and it was of his own provocation. I believe that the breathing we did together enabled him to open up that way. For a few moments, he experienced a sense of possibility beyond the confines of his usual dilemmas. Space and openness came through, and intimacy is the natural result. Though we went to great lengths to translate the session in Italian and to record a short practice for him on paper, I knew it was unlikely he would take up the practice. Well, he did, actually. I was so touched. She wrote, she, she, she wrote a really beautiful account of her, of knowing him uh, just a few days after, after he died. So I really feel like what Simone's describing here is attunement. Really being able to track Ignazio, and then Ignazio has this moment of caring about his experience. In the rumination that you can imagine he's usually in, which she calls a dilemma, um, he's in his philosophy. There's no space in his heart. I think we all know that it's easy to age that way. 
it's easy for our philosophy to get hard and cynical. And of course, mindfulness practice is really good for your brain. It's really good for reducing stress. All those things. It will make you happy. And at the same time, it will crack open where your heart is getting hard. You can feel it doing it for you now already. Where you're hard in your relationships, hard on yourself. So here's what Shanti Deva says. This is uh, fourth chapter, line 26, if you want to follow. For it's as if by chance that I have gained this state so hard to find where to help myself. And now, when freedom, which is the power of choice, is mine, if once again I'm led away to hell. It's a really good definition of freedom. That freedom is the mind state where you have a choice. Are you going to fall back on the old philosophy or are you going to make a new move? Does anybody here dance? No. Because there's so many parents. Um, so I find this with dancing. I find dancing really hard. It's really hard to dance in a way where as you're moving, the movements are new. The body just wants to always go into what you know, the repertoire. And I remember uh, for a while I used to teach at the Toronto Dance Theater, and so I would take every workshop I could. And then at the end of a workshop, I, I just felt so free. And then within a little while, I'd go to the next workshop, and then I could only move within the technique that I learned in the last workshop. And of course, we all have this. We notice this in the way we speak or the way we listen. We notice these grooves. But when you use your whole body, I think, you really notice this. In the yoga postures, I think we really notice this. Uh, and then he says, and now when freedom, the power of choice, is right there, it's mine, I'm once again led away to hell. <laughs> well, you have, so remember, Shanti Deva is a monk at Nalanda University, the largest Buddhist center on earth. Still to this day, it's the largest Buddhist center on earth. Many centuries ago in India. And... Um, He's saying, I've got all this practice, and just when I'm in the moment where the emotions start to arise that are habitual, I'm led away. Then he says, I am as if numbed by sorcery. Does anybody ever feel this way? <laughs> I'm numbed by sorcery. Has anybody here been gripped today? I got gripped today. Uh, Karina really wanted something sweet. So I went to this place called Food Guru. Has anyone been to this place? Okay. So it's like, if you buy a dessert there, it's like $40. Okay? 
So, so then I'm paying, and then I look down at my box, and I bought like five things. I bought one of everything that they had. What happened? I just was numbed out. I didn't know what happened. And then so I said to the, the woman there, who's the owner, I said, I can't pay for I can't buy all this. It's going to be really expensive. She, she, and then she said, oh, you have the pregnant partner, right? I said, yeah. She said, it's okay. We'll give you some of these on the house. <laughs> But then I'm going to go home with all these sweets, you know. It's just not there. It's as if I'm none by sorcery, my mind reduced to total impotence, with no perception of the madness overwhelming me. What is it that has me in its grip? So the power of choice, he's saying here, gives us freedom. And we're crazy not to take advantage of it. But the momentum is so strong. When our habits have a lot of momentum and they're old, it's hard to choose wisely when we're in their grip. So I love this. Numb by sorcery, reduced to total impotence. (laughs) So good. Anger... Lust, these enemies of mine, are limbless and devoid of faculties. They have no bravery and they are not clever. (laughs) How have they reduced me to such slavery? (laughs) So this is the real question, I think. How have they reduced me (laughs) to such slavery? So I think we all know emotional reactivity usually is not the same as feeling something. We feel something and then we lay on it our emotional reactivity. And you can feel that reactivity start with a tightening and a tugging. You can feel it in your breathing, a tightening down. And then desire comes into that. Desire loves tightness. And we can go from a moment of being just slightly miffed to being out of control. (laughs) From one macaroon to three pieces of chocolate cake. It is I who welcome them within my heart, allowing them to harm me at their pleasure. I, who suffer all without resentment, thus my abject patience, but it's all displaced. Let me read you what Pema Chodron writes about this. When we realize that we like our kleshas, we begin to understand why they have such power over us. Us. Hatred, for example, can make us feel strong and in charge. Rage makes us feel even more powerful and invulnerable. Isn't that true? I mean, doesn't rage show up where we're most vulnerable? Most vulnerable. Craving and wanting can feel soothing, romantic and nostalgic. 
I've never experienced that. Have you experienced that before? (laughs) We weep over lost loves or unfulfilled dreams. It's painful and it's deliciously bittersweet. Therefore, we don't even consider interrupting the flow. Ignorance is oddly comforting. We don't have to do anything. We just lay back and don't relate to what's happening around us at all. Each of us has our own personal way of welcoming and encouraging them. Being attentive to this is the first and crucial step. If we like them, we will never be motivated to interrupt their seductiveness. We'll always be too complacent and accommodating. So she's talking about a chain reaction. And then Shanti Deva says, No other enemy indeed has lived so long as my defiled emotions. O oh, my enemy, afflictive passion, endless and beginningless companion, all other enemies that I appease and wait upon will show me favors, give me aid. But should I serve my dark emotions, they will only harm me and draw me down to grief. So he's saying, you know, Shanti Deva is saying that our afflictive emotions, it's like having a pusher in you. And not to be convinced that that pusher ever goes away. To know the sequence that happens when we're getting caught and to be able to catch it. That's freedom. That's freedom. You know, I think mostly because of strange colonial academics, most of our ideas about Buddhist monks are that they were um, hermits. But in in the Buddhist tradition, uh, monks were never hermits. They were wanderers, but they were not hermits. And they wandered homelessly from place to place, serving people building sangha, taking care of their own inner afflictions, and also looking after those same afflictions in others. It's not to hide out. There's a wonderful Zen saying that the simple retreat is to go up into the forest with the rivers. But the big retreat is to disappear in the capital. The deep practice is to practice anonymously in our culture, in our city, in your gender, in your family, in your school, in your community, in your age, in your body, with your drama and to practice with it. It's what connects us. It takes a lot of courage to go in both directions. The direction of really taking care of the inner. And I want to stress this again. 
When I say practice, it means practice. Just say to yourself. For me, I do it in the evening. I say to myself, tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to sit. I find if you say it in the morning, it's not so good. You say it in the morning and you're kind of caught by your mood. But if you want to start a daily sitting practice, the best way to start is by setting an intention when you're going to bed. When you're going to bed, you say to yourself, tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off early, I'm going to get up and I'm going to sit. And I'm going to start the day with this practice so that it perfumes the whole day. And then the energy will be there when you wake up because it's been working on you all night. So sometimes people say they have a hard time starting a daily practice. The first thing I say, start the night before. Start in how you go to sleep the night before. Um, I want to end because I only wanted to cover half of this chapter uh, just with some guidelines for practice Um, and then next week I think I just want to spend the the class just really practical ways of how to bring this practice to bear when you're in extreme states is anybody here in extreme states every once in a while Is there anything anybody wants to say before I, I offer some suggestions for practice? Comments or observations? Sam. Uh, just about um, therapy and the, any experience I've had with therapy has been exactly what you, the opposite of what you said. It's usually somebody looking at a clock I haven't been to that much, but yeah. what I didn't enjoy about it yeah. was not feeling like the person was even paying attention to me, yeah. let alone engaging in it. So that experience is really interesting to yeah. to it. So was that something that you brought to that, or were you were you taught that to to follow along intentionally, or is that something that came naturally for you? Um. Oh, well, you know, I started out studying therapy and getting into that career as a young person. And so uh, I was quite avoidant. So for me, um, I was really excited to work with people. I, I, I had started a PhD and I quit because I really just wanted to work with people. And um, I was also terrified of working with people. <coughs> And that became my practice. And I had really good mentors. But I think you can't really work with somebody therapeutically unless you're inspired by them. And maybe one thing that might inspire you is that they can be really present with you around places in you that you can't be present with. 
it's kind of like there's something you can't digest and they you can see that they're digesting it and then slowly every time you're with them and they're digesting it their digestion hands you back a little bit of what you can't digest and two people have to be right there with each other and if they're not you can feel it and i would say that's not the healing modality of therapy that what's healing about therapy is relationship not technique yeah. not technique what's healing about the dharma is relationship you know the the way i see things at center of gravity and i don't know if i should be saying this cuz i just it's like in my mind but um <laughs> Somebody comes and they practice and people have a thousand different reasons for coming to practice. And then hopefully they take the precepts course or some intensives. And then once I meet somebody one on one, we have a karmic bond because it's intimate. And if they end up hating me and I never see them again, that bond never will break and that's a dharma bond that i feel is the lineage of this practice and that's why i go on and on about meetings i mean anybody who's been on retreat knows about meetings because this lineage has what's called face to face transmission face to face it's an essential part of the practice it's just as important as every other thing that we do because healing happens that way and you don't even have to like your teacher and i think we all have to go through periods of fighting form but there's something about the intimacy in that relationship that as anarchist as i will ever be that teacher student dynamic when it's built on trust and both people are willing to be 100% there um goes really deep and it goes deep for both people for me i will never let that person go in my heart even if i don't see them again yeah. so that's how i feel and i think sometimes therapists are not honest about how privileged they are to do the work they do because they get so much out of it uh, that might have been a tangent <laughs> sorry Com- comments questions at the end yeah. okay no other comments or questions that's it yeah i can't even see who's there oh jack <laughs> welcome back jack jack has been away for so long he's back with a tan <laughs> i wanted to give you a piece of freedom on um when you read it it really resonated 
I think it was that freedom. Does anybody remember that? Oh, here. For it's as if by chance that I have gained this state so hard to find where to help myself. And now, when freedom, which is the power of choice, is mine, if once again I'm led away to help. Right there, freedom is possible. And right at the edge, I'm led away to help. Um, is it I guess maybe it's both like I think of like what leads you away at that moment is it yeah. fear or is it habit are they both fear is habit fear because mm-hmm. um, when like that, that feeling when you know like you've, you've tracked yourself you watch the sequence you see it's all leading up to something whatever to some other some typical behavior and you have mm-hmm. all those moments at every step as it's leading there that mm-hmm. you're conscious of to turn like to do anything different yeah um and then and at the same time flooded with your compulsions and also your reason mm-hmm. your rationale for yeah. making that choice mm-hmm. in the first place mm-hmm. and mm. maybe you even have two reasons in your head one that's giving you your past behavior and why mm-hmm. that's served you and then mm-hmm. one that's giving you an option that you don't know what it will do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess that's I'm answering my own question. Mm-hmm. Someone once told me in those circumstances just to try it out for a minute. You could tell yourself you can go back every other minute yeah. other than this one and you're just going to try it out just yeah. once and see what happens. When Martine Batchelor was here in Toronto, she gave a really good Last time she came, she gave a really good practice. If you ever have fear, she said, whenever you're really caught in fear, you just say to yourself, let's see what happens. <laughs> Which is a little bit like the story I told about the New Year's retreat, where someone had this insight, and she said, all I have to do is care. So, so next week I'll talk more about fear. But, but I do want to say one thing about what you just said, which is we need to use everything to practice. We need to use the bell to practice. How you ring the bell is deep practice. I always give the instruction which you've heard. When you ring the bell, you visualize that the bell is everybody's heart in the room. And so you just ring everybody's heart. And that should be in the intention. Use the Donna box as practice. When you go to the Donna box, you give money. Everybody's so uptight about giving a dollar nowadays, huh? RRSP season. You know, you're going to age, you're going to get sick. Everyone's keeping whatever they have is austerity. But feel what it's like to really give. Do you just throw the money in there? Do you look at how much is in there? Oh, there's a lot of hundreds. I think I'm just going to give a quarter today. Maybe I'll get a deal. So a really good practice is when you walk away from the Donna box, you shouldn't have any regrets. 
did I kind of just give the minimum? <coughs> did I give the suggested amount of $20 and not think about it? How can I feel giving? And every time I go to that Donna box, I'm going to treat it as a practice of giving because all of us have drama around money. Everybody in this room. And when you walk away after putting in the $150,000 check, you should just check in about any regrets you might have. (laughs) And really check that out. I have a practice where I give a certain percentage of my money every year to my teacher. Because that's what you do when you're Jewish. That's what Jews do. And I thought, oh, well, the Buddhists don't do that, but, you know, I think that would be a good spiritual thing to do. And I couldn't do anything of what I'm doing without my teachers. So I really encourage you to consider this. Um, Okay, so I'm going to end with some guidelines for practice. On the New Year's retreat, I asked people who had jobs to write a letter to the person who has that job next year. So when they come on the New Year's retreat, if the job is to clean the bathroom, then they have a letter from the person who cleaned the bathroom how to do that practice. Okay? Uh, So... um, The person who was my assistant, Annie, she wrote one to whoever's my assistant next year. Mike did tea lights and windows, cleaning windows, so he wrote one. And so I'm just going to start sharing them uh, over the next few months because I think they're all really good suggestions for practice. Um, Andrea's job was the archivist. So she took (coughs) photographs of the retreat uh, as an archive, which should go up on our Flickr account this week. So I'm just going to end by reading you what Andrea wrote to the person next year, with her permission. January 2013, letter to archivist. Don't try to archive everything. (laughs) Work outside in as follows. Day one, just arrive, don't archive. Day two, start with the grounds, trees, rocks, snow, dried flowers. Day three, archive people outside walking, cutting wood, spreading salt. Archive the kitchen and one meal. At lunchtime, the light is beautiful. You can eat after the meal is over. The kitchen will provide you with a bowl and leftovers. (laughs) Day four, archive one sit, one walking meditation period and the evening talk. Day five, Take few pictures. Your work is over. Prepare for ending the retreat. Take breaths between photographs. This is a time, slow down the process of photographing what exists. Really see what you are photographing before you click. It's okay to at times rush to capture what's needed. At times you won't be able to take breaths between photos. Wait. Realize when you are clinging and grasping. Clean your equipment. 
I can picture you in the shower cleaning your... (laughs) Remember that each snap is a reminder to wake up. This might help with the tension that you might feel when you click during silent moments. Follow your instincts. Don't try to limit the number of photos you will take. Take less than you want to. Be mostly in retreat. Take photos during the working period and then at special times like the one meal, the sit, the talk, etc. Notice when you are tired and stop. It's a hard job. They will thank you for it later. (laughs) No matter how conscious, attentive, and respectful, you will feel like a hunter. (laughs) You are intruding less than you feel. Some people are not noticing you at all. Some people will notice you. It gives them something to practice with. Allow three weeks to pass before you start editing. You may not need to remind people at the closing circle in the end to be aware that photos will change their perception of the retreat. They will figure it out for themselves. Maybe that is not so important. Last one, spread your attention. Look at what you don't like. Forget for a while what you do like. Who and what and how have you been ignoring? Thank you. Let's finish by chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted dramas. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted dramas. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. Thank you.